Welcome to Revelier's Value-Based Healthcare Podcast. In every episode, we discuss healthcare technology, innovation, and current events, presenting interviews with the thought leaders from a variety of disciplines of healthcare. Don't miss any episode by subscribing to the series via Revelier.com. And now, here's our host, Jay Ackerman, introducing today's guest. Today, I'm excited to be joined by Dr. Ronald Paulus. Dr. Ronald Paulus is president and CEO of RAPMD Strategic Advisors, providing advisory services to health systems, boards, CEOs, technology companies, and others. He is the immediate past president and CEO of Mission Health, a $2 billion integrated health system serving all of Western North Carolina. Before joining Mission Health, Dr. Paulus was Executive Vice President, Clinical Operations and Chief Innovation Officer for Geisinger Health System, where he managed Geisinger's hospitals and its more than 800 physician member group practice, was also responsible for ensuring system-wide innovation. Dr. Paulus received his MD degree from the School of Medicine, University of Pennsylvania, and his MBA, concentration in healthcare management, and BS in economics from the Wharton School, University of Pennsylvania. I guess you'd probably uh, never thought you were going to leave UPenn. I call it the lifetime tuition plan. Yeah. Well, <laughs> welcome, uh, Dr. Paulus. I'm glad to have you with us today. Yeah, call me Ron. All right, Ron. So let's dive in. Why don't we talk a little bit about yourself and your healthcare journey? Yeah, so it's kind of a crazy story. Born into a village of 35 people in uh, central Pennsylvania. I lived with my brother and sister and mom and dad and grandparents in a house that didn't have complete indoor plumbing. And then my mom and dad moved to the, quote, big city of 10,000. And it's been an interesting journey. My brother, who's five years older, was the first in our family to go to college. And then you can see we've all been overcompensating ever since. And so <laughs> I, I became interested in medicine as a kid, you know, when I broke my leg in fourth grade, my tibia, the big shin bone. I went to the doctor and it was just like the whole thing was just like so cool in terms of, you know, fixing the problem and finding it and all the equipment and all that. So that's what initially led me to medicine. And then when I got to Penn as an undergraduate, I became exposed to and enamored by a lot of economic and health policy issues. So that's what led to that whole University of Pennsylvania saga. And then maybe how about what brought you to Geisinger and then Geisinger to Mission Health? Prior to Geisinger, I had co-founded a uh, predictive analytics company that spun out a pen, yet another pen tie. That was a 12-year journey of, you know, startup, venture, IPO, sold the company. And after that experience, I wanted to get back closer to where care was being delivered. And Geisinger at that time was doing some really interesting things. And I had the privilege of serving there with Glenn Steele, who was the CEO at the time, Howard Grant, who was the CMO, Rick Gefillin, who was the head of the health plan. Glenn really gave me, we, we concocted this chief innovation officer title to allow me to create trouble anywhere, you know, I sort of wanted to. And so a lot of that early work was around creating bundled payment models and the proven health navigator, medical home model, and so forth and so on. And it was just spectacular. But about four and a half years into that journey, I had made a blood pact with my wife never to move the kids during high school. And so Glenn had extended his CEO role for another five years, more power to him. He certainly deserved it and was the right guy. But that created a dilemma for me. And so I, I opened 
myself to recruitment options and ended up being recruited down to Mission Health, where I saw an opportunity to apply a lot of the work that I had engaged in at Geisinger, but in a fundamentally different locale. That's fabulous. Thanks for sharing the background. Let's talk a little bit about the last kind of 10 months. What have you learned about operating in this pandemic and in this kind of stay at home, maybe for you and, and the people you work closely with? Yeah, well, the first thing I learned, which is something I try to remind myself every day, is just how incredibly blessed I am to be in a a role in a system where I can do my work virtually. And we know that so many people can't. And I still feel guilty in part of not being on the front line, you know, in a caregiver role. And so honored to to know how those folks are out there delivering on what our nation's needs are. But I also learned, you know, how resilient the team that I work with is. It's just amazing to me how everyone rallied and stayed on point despite all the chaos As you know, I'm an executive in residence with General Catalyst, the private equity firm, and that team of people has just been so incredible. Throughout this pandemic, I closed one of my first major deals with a company called Olive right in the middle of the chaos in late March, April. And uh, I have another colleague from GC who's on the board of Moderna with, you know, one of the two approved vaccines. So, It's just amazing how adaptable, resilient, and creative all the portfolio companies uh, have been. And then two other quick things. One, how much travel that I did was probably not really necessary. And the fact that my wife and I could spend a lot more time together without killing one another. Yeah, I think we're, uh, (laughs) I think there are many people that are going through both of those, those learnings. And she gets all the credit uh, because I've never wanted to kill her. Wonderful. All right, let's talk about the change that's unfolding in this industry that we love called healthcare. What are the greatest challenges that you see that you continuously encounter in healthcare? Yeah, I think the first two for me are the inequities in accessing care based upon geography and socioeconomic status. It's been around since the beginning of time, but uh, those challenges remain and a tremendous amount of work to do. Second, uh, as it relates not just to the pandemic, but before the pandemic, it's the challenges our frontline clinicians and caregivers are facing. Even before the pandemic, problems with burnout and compassion fatigue. And then you layer on top of that this risk of being infected, taking it home to your loved ones. And an area that sort of caught a lot of my attention and passion, which is around this tragedy of workplace violence in healthcare. The overwhelming majority of workplace violence events in all of the United States industries occur in healthcare, almost 80%. 80% of nurses have been assaulted at some point during their career and sadly and tragically often view it as just part of the job. So those things are baseline Maslow's hierarchy. Am I safe? You know, Am I in a place that I can do what I need to do? Also, the, you know, sort of resistance to change, particularly as it relates to cost and quality. This has been a long journey, and I found that humans have an incredible capacity to focus on what's wrong with the new idea while completely ignoring what's wrong with the current state. It's just sort of a cognitive dissonance that is remarkable. And then lastly, I think it's the challenge for payers and providers to work together when the only way there's ever going to be real uh, transformational solutions is if financing and delivery come together. And that's not only going to happen with vertical integration. 
If you don't mind, let's double click on a couple of those. Yeah. Maybe uh, we'll start with the last one first, the payer providers working together. How do you see, do you see a silver lining in, in how COVID has shaken up healthcare? Do you think that'll drive payers and providers closer together? Yeah, I hope so. You know, when I was at Geisinger where, you know, we had a health plan and a delivery system and we were not hermetically sealed like Kaiser, you know, where it's full 100% vertical integration. So about a third of the patients, we both provided insurance and the care. And what was remarkable was what we could do in what we called that sweet spot. You know, we could change the incentives and care models. You know, we were doing virtual care back then in an innovative way. The pandemic sort of opened that up so that everybody, you know, is now exposed to virtual care, which I think is one of the lasting good things about the pandemic. But without the ability to manipulate those payment incentives, it's just incredibly hard to get people to do the right thing without undermining and destroying their core business, right? So that's one of the biggest friction points. And Kevin Volp, another Penn guy, you know, had a call for a a new reimbursement paradigm recently in an article that laid out some of the challenges around this. So I am hopeful that the pandemic will open up, you know, both providers and payers to new things. I don't know how much I should bet on it. (laughs) Yeah. And maybe the the point right before that about the resistance to change and what's wrong with a new idea versus what's wrong with the status quo. How do you see that changing and evolving? Do you see anything going on in the industry that will accelerate the willingness for payers to drive change, for providers to drive change, and even for the individual member seeking care to drive change? Yeah, I think there's three things there. You know, number one, although I must admit, I've been talking about this and others have been talking about this since I was an undergraduate many, many, many years ago, taking my first healthcare systems course, literally called Healthcare 001. And the professor at the time, Bernie Bloom, was talking about how healthcare is almost 8% of GDP. And if it it rises, it's going to hit 10% and all hell's going to break loose. Well, we're almost at 20. (laughs) But I do think that pressure, particularly on federal and state governments, you know, with Medicaid now being the largest expenditure for most states beyond education and so forth, and employers, you know, having it be such a big, that pressure is still building and that's going to be one force. The second force is consumerization. I think consumers as, you know, baby boomers and millennials and so forth keep continuing to flow through. They have different expectations than people have had in the past. And I think there's going to be a lot of pressure to put the consumer at the center. And then thirdly, in my private equity work, you know, startup companies are not waiting for change to happen from within. They're innovating from without and they're forcing change. And I think those three things is going to either wreak havoc on existing incumbents or force them out of the comfort zone into a, a much more radical change model. That's a perfect segue to my next question, which is, what innovation do you see emerging in healthcare right now that you're most excited about? And I imagine you get to see a lot in the seat you sit in at General Catalyst. Yeah, I mean, it's a blessing, I'll tell you that. And there are three areas that I think have the biggest opportunity for healthcare right now. The first is AI and automation. I think, although there's been a lot of overblown hype, I do believe that AI is going to have a transformational impact 
the machine learning capabilities that are evolving as designed largely to assist humans, I believe, is going to be the biggest impact and automation that goes along with that. Right now, every day, companies like Olive and others are automating tasks that humans used to do and that were frankly dull and drudgery and error prone and so forth, freeing up time and space to do other things and to frankly have a better economic outcome for themselves. The second is around the merging of biology and informatics. I'm also on the board of a company called Carius that does for infectious disease what liquid biopsies do for oncology. So it takes a sample of blood, it extracts all of the human DNA, it amplifies the remaining DNA, which is the pathogenic DNA. But that's not enough. It then runs those DNA SNPs against an AI database of known pathogens and then produces, this is what the infection is. And that's just the tip of the iceberg on this intersection between biology and informatics. And the third is around the ability to manipulate the genome. CRISPR technology and related technologies with editing DNA, not unlike what a word processor did to typewriting, is going to have changes that are just unfathomable. Ethically challenging in part, but are going to be just, I think, remarkably positive. Thanks for sharing those three innovations that are unfolding. You've served in some interesting chairs and thus have a perspective that not many have. What advice might you have for health plan or health system executives in navigating the industry right now? Yeah, so having just come out just over a year ago, coming out of navigating one of those roles, it's it's hard to give advice. But the things that I, I'll just say how I thought about it was don't run from the most foundational problems, you know, the ones that are super hard to solve. That's where you have to spend your time and recognize that it's a marathon, not a sprint. And you got to keep focusing on that every single day to talk about what those core problems are openly and thoughtfully, even when it makes people very uncomfortable. And, you know, that's a hard thing to do as a leader to make people uncomfortable all the time. But I think it's also one of our most important roles. And then to think about how to remain laser focused on moving from treating sick people to assuring people's health, well-being, and optimizing health over time. That puts the consumer right at the center. And I think if you focus on how do you keep your team members safe and engaged and well, and how do you keep your constituents, whether you call them patients, consumers, you know, whatever, safe, healthy, and well, and address those core problems, I think you'll do well. So continuing on that thread around keeping people well and working to keep them well versus treating the sickness, what recommendation would you have for the public or what do you think needs to happen for the public to take more ownership around the wellness? Yeah, so that's a huge thing because let's think about what comprises our health status, right? 30% is what we're born with, our DNA, at least for now, until CRISPR edits it all out. And 20% at best is from the healthcare delivery system. And that remaining 50% is some combination of behavioral lifestyle choices and what are referred to as social determinants, your lived environment, your socioeconomic status, et cetera, et cetera. 
And then what are the most common diseases in the United States? Obesity, diabetes, COPD, the so-called diseases of despair, suicide, etc. Those are all behavior change issues. So focusing on behavior change at the consumer level, using a behavioral economics framework and so forth, is the key to what we can do to really fundamentally improve and maintain health and well-being. At the societal level, it's all about social determinants, right? But as a consumer and individual, it's essential that you, we each take control over who we are, what we do, and get support externally because we're all frail and we're all subject to wanting to do the wrong things and so forth. It's not about judging. It's about understanding that we have control and must take control and then building the support, coaching, behavioral, other expert infrastructure that we need. Anything that you might add on how you see payers and providers playing a stronger hand around social determinants of health? Yeah, I'm glad that health plans are allowed to spend money on social determinants now and that Medicare is moving in that direction as well. I think social determinants, that's not a marathon, that's an ultra marathon. Yeah, yeah. Right? So I think the issue is it's really got to be a collaboration between providers and payers and local, regional, state, and federal governments, right? Because these are societal infrastructure components that we've gotten out of sort of the willingness to invest in. But I think if payers and providers can do tests of change to show impact, there's an opportunity that will be created for others to step in. And one of the things from my mission health role, my role ended with a transaction that created the largest per capita foundation ever formed in America, the Dogwood Health Trust, that is dedicated exclusively to social determinants. That occurred when HCA acquired Mission Health. And that was exactly because the board knew that if it wanted to fundamentally change the health status, not just the care delivery of the citizens of Western North Carolina, it had to have the funding to invest in social determinants. And they decided that they wanted to go out and get it. So they now have plus or minus $2 billion for 900,000 people. It's going to be one of the largest social experiments ever made in healthcare in America. Is there any place that you can highlight on this podcast where people could go to understand more about that and, and to follow the progress unfold? Yes, I would go to dogwoodhealthtrust.org go to the website and see what they're doing and follow them over time. Remember, you're not going to see change in weeks or months. It's decades. Yeah. No, this uh, is, as you put it, it's the ultra marathon for sure. Yeah. yeah fantastic. Well, uh, on that note, Ron, we'll bring it to a close. Uh, I really enjoyed the dialogue today. Likewise. Before Perfect. I let you off the hook and let you get on with, uh, I'm sure, what is a very busy agenda, let's wrap with four quick questions. So okay. what keeps you up at night? This election, <laughs> right? uh, I still have teenagers and, uh, you know, time, you know, we have to change this system holist holistically and it's just, there's never enough time. So when you are a bit restless and yeah, like you, I think that election is, uh, I woke up this morning, probably more anxious than I've been in a long time around it. What book might you grab from your nightstand while you're reading it? When I read at night, I usually read uh, online, even though I'm not supposed to be. And uh, this will probably sound crazy, but I love reading about physics, particularly anything that involves the Schrodinger cat experiment. 
And believe it or not, there's actually quite a number of things going on out there that relate to uh, that experiment. Fabulous. Well, uh, I'll have to check that one out myself. <laughs> All right. So next up, how do you invest in yourself? For me, exercise, exercise, exercise. It's when I get to free associate, solve problems, de-stress. That's what I do. How'd you change your exercise rhythm through the pandemic? Uh, I moved to Santa Monica so I could be outside on the beach. <laughs> well played. Well played. All right. Last one, and we'll wrap it up. What's the most creative thing you've done during your stay-at-home period? I completely remodeled a home 2,500 miles away so I could run on the beach. <laughs> All right. Well, with that, we'll wrap today's value-based healthcare podcast. Ron, you've been a great guest. Thank you for your time. Thank you. I appreciate it. Over and out. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Value-Based Healthcare Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to share it via LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter. For more healthcare technology news and information, follow Revelier on LinkedIn. We hope you join us next time.